Let me read the opening verses of Jonah as we prepare to move into this study for the next four weeks. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, a familiar opening to a familiar book, and uh, we could even outline the familiar consequences that come with running away. But Lord, as we consider what it looks like for one man in particular to run away from God today, I pray that you would convict our hearts of those areas where we do just that, where your will has been made clear, plain, absolutely known to us, and in our stubbornness and in our hardness, we choose to turn and run the other way. Maybe not literally by getting on a ship, but figuratively by avoiding the call of God in our lives. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes today, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that you would strip away the stubbornness, the hardness of our hearts, the dullness of our ears. Lord, that you would help us to deal rightly with the sin that so easily entangles and ensnares us, and that you would help us to see clearly, that your spirit would enlighten us to your word. And I pray that understanding isn't the end of the story. Lord, I pray that through your grace and the power of that same Holy Spirit that you've given to your people, that we then begin to walk in obedience. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love. We need you to bind our hearts to you. We need your help to hear, to understand, and then to obey. And so we recognize our dependence in these things, and we ask that you would be gracious to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grace is a big, it's a big word. It's a big part of Jonah. On Thursday, uh, I got to see several people from Chapel City as we celebrated the life of Jim McCluskey, celebrated a life well-lived, the man who uh, was welcomed into the presence of his Savior and that we are certain heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And one of the, one of the most precious parts of a lot of those memorial services uh, is hearing people's accounts and stories and remembrances of uh, the departed, of the deceased. And Pastor Jim, uh, who will be sitting probably over there, second service, you don't have to look now, uh, he, uh, he said something as he got up there. Uh, Pastor Jim said that Jim was a graceful man, and he didn't mean his movements, not many of us saw Jim dance, but he said that Jim was a man that was full of grace. And, you know, that really stuck with me because a couple of people after Pastor Jim said that reiterated that fact in Jim's life. And it got me thinking of two things. First of all, what a remarkable way to be remembered. Uh, what a precious thing if people can say that your life was one that was just saturated with grace because you had been shown grace. Uh, but then it also got me thinking, well, what is grace? We use that word an awful lot, especially in our Christian circles. What is grace? And we have the acronym, uh, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is, that is accurate. That is a, a pouring out of God's grace in salvation. But if we think about it, God is gracious far beyond that single act of salvation, isn't he? Uh, grace is essentially doing good, giving blessing, acting kindly towards someone that doesn't deserve it. When we think about it that way, the grace of God, again, absolutely true in the act of salvation in our lives. 
But if we think about it that way, isn't God so very gracious to his entire creation every single day? When it comes to the book of Jonah, it's a book of grace. In every single chapter, we are going to be confronted with the grace of God. In every single chapter, not only is it a kindness of God, it is this sovereign grace, this grace that comes with overwhelming power and authority behind it. And so as we open up Jonah today, we're going to move through the first chapter. And the first thing we're going to do is look at the message as a whole. We'll look at the outline, the important who's and when's and why questions about the book. And then we're going to look at the mutiny, the rebellion that takes place in chapter 1. So let's open up first and look at the message itself. And we'll start by asking that important who question, really the important who questions, who wrote it and who was it written to. And we get the answer at least in part in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. We know that the book is called Jonah, so that the word of the Lord came to Jonah is not a great surprise to us. Uh, But this time, we do know something a little bit more about Jonah. We're told that he is the son of Amittai, so we know his father. Uh, But Jonah is also mentioned at other places in the biblical record. In particular, the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. At this time in Israel's history, we are uh, several decades beyond the dividing of the kingdom. Remember, north and south, Jonah is from the north. In the north, there's a king ruling named Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, it says that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. One of the things I like about reading Kings and Chronicles is every time a new king is presented, the way it's presented is either they followed after their fathers in obedience or they followed after their fathers in rebellion. And you get this sense where every new king is almost this new chance, this chance to either turn from wickedness or to continue in faithfulness or this chance to break a cycle that's been established in as every king of the northern kingdom did, uh, Jeroboam was wicked. But God was gracious, and God is patient. Because in verse 25, 2 Kings 14, 25, it says, He, that is Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. God said Israel was going to gain back territory, and it happened under the rule of this man. And that word of the Lord came through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. You say that means a little bit, but not a lot. So Jonah, understand this, first of all, is a prophet. Remember, Amos said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I was a guy that God pulled out of the fields. Not so with Jonah. Jonah has already spoken the word of the Lord. More than that, Jonah has already seen the word of the Lord fulfilled. He is well aware of the power and the ability of God to do exactly what he said he was going to do. But it also places Jonah geographically in the area of Galilee in a place called Gath-Hefer. So in this next slide, what you're going to see is that familiar northern kingdom. And that square up there is the area of Galilee just north of the Jezreel Valley that Jonah is from. And the next slide is going to give you a little bit of a zoom in there. That's where Gath-Hefer is. And you might notice that there's a more familiar little village just to the south and to the west, the little village of Galilee in Nazareth. That might or might not be a connection to somebody that you've heard of in the New Testament. That is where Jonah is from. He's a local boy, just over the ridge from where Jesus Christ grew up. Now, Jonah, prophet to the north, from the north, 
But who is he writing to? Verse 2 helps us with that. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The book of Jonah is unique among the minor prophets. So many times in the minor prophets, we have a prophet who is given a message, and then the bulk of that book is the oracles or the visions or the warnings of that prophet. It's this is what God is saying to his people. Uh, This is what you've done. This is why I am going to judge you. And quite often, these are the promises that will continue to remain in place because God is faithful. Uh, Jonah is a little bit different in that Jonah is not primarily about the message. The bulk of Jonah isn't the message. The bulk of Jonah is the historical account of the delivery or lack of delivery of that message. So Jonah really is much more narrative than the other minor prophets. And God has sent Jonah to a very particular place. He tells him to arise, to get up, and to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a capital or chief city in the Assyrian Empire. And on the next slide, you can see where that is. Assyria is to the north and to the east of God's people in Israel and Judah. Assyria is a powerful people. They are a military uh, machine. And when we talk about Nineveh, Nineveh is a great city in every sense of the word. It is the center of power for a powerful empire. It is a population center. It is a great city in size. Uh, Chapter 3 is going to tell us that it's a three-day journey around the city. Chapter 4 says that there are 120,000 people that don't know their right from their left. So 120,000 children or infants who have a very young age. So there are a lot of people that are living there. It's also an extremely fortified city. Historically, we have records that indicate that the walls surrounding Nineveh were up to 100 feet high in some places. Uh, that three chariots wide could fit across the top. So this is a secure city. Not only is it a greatly populated and a greatly uh, secured city, it is a greatly wicked city. The prophet Nahum, who we will come to eventually in our movement through the minor prophets, gives his entire prophecy against the city of Nineveh. Jonah has a warning. Nahum has a condemnation. And this is how Nahum chapter 3 describes the city. Nahum 3, verses 1 through 3, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. That's the prophet's picture of what the city of Nineveh was like just a generation after Jonah. So this is a city of great size, great population, and great evil. Now we can not only answer the who's, but we can also address the when of Jonah. Where that was really difficult with Obadiah, Jonah, we have some help. Because we know the king who was in place when he prophesied. We know when Jeroboam reigned. So we can pretty confidently date this prophecy from around 775 to 780 B.C. And in your bulletins, you'll see that prophetic timeline there that we've given you with the different minor prophets slotted in there. That's on the back. I know that some of you find that helpful. So if you look at that, you'll see that Jonah was a contemporary of Amos in that northern kingdom different audience, but that he wrote around the same time that Amos prophesied just before that. But more than knowing just the specific details and dates, I want you to understand what kind of time Jonah writes to, uh, because that's critical. 
Under the reign of Jeroboam II, we've already talked about the fact that God uh, allowed the borders to be restored, that there would be some peace and security. Under the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel, the northern kingdom, went through a period of increase and prosperity and peace. Uh, crops flourished. The military was strong. The borders were secure, uh, primarily because their enemies were fairly weak. So while Israel is kind of thriving and growing in strength, we also need to understand something about Assyria at this time that we don't typically get into. And that is that Assyria, although they were still a very menacing, very threatening people, Assyria is at a period of relative decline during this time. They are between strong kings. Assyria does not have a super powerful political leader. They will in just a generation. We know that Assyria is going to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., but right now, they're between strong leaders. Not only are they between strong leaders, but at this point, Assyria is pretty constantly plagued by these warlike tribes from the north and to the east of them who have pushed the Assyrian border to within 100 miles of Nineveh. And that doesn't mean anything to us until you realize that 100 miles from home, being the front lines for a war, is not very secure. Not only that, but historically, there's evidence that the city of Nineveh itself had undergone several plagues at this point, that there had been crop failures, that there had been sickness among the population. And so in a little bit of a historical snapshot that we don't usually see, what we find out is that while Israel is strong, Nineveh is relatively weak, and that God in his sovereignty has actually already begun to prepare a people to hear a very strange message. And that brings us to the why. Why is Jonah written and included in our Bibles? The first text is the obvious driving message of, of the text itself. Look at the rest of verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. Just like we saw in the book of Obadiah, God does not tolerate sin. He is in that specific precious covenant relationship with Israel, but God does not tolerate sin among the nations. He is holy. Nineveh and Assyria as a whole as an empire are a wicked people, and God will deal with wicked people. He cannot ignore their rebellion, but beyond delivering that specific message, there's a greater purpose for this book. This book, in a very special way, demonstrates the sovereignty of God. If I were to ask you to begin to think through just what you know of Jonah right now, don't get too far off track with me in your mind here. I'm going to call you back in a second. But you could probably think through the four chapters of Jonah because you're so familiar with that story. And you could begin to think through the ways that the sovereignty of God is on display in this book. And we're going to highlight those as we go through. But more than that, the overwhelming testimony of the book of Jonah is that that sovereign God is gracious. He is mighty and he is powerful and he is powerful to save and redeem people. Every chapter of this book points to the sovereign grace of God, the grace that calls fallen and failed men to himself, the grace that is not undone by failure, a sovereign grace that does not see any city, any people, any nation as being so far removed that they cannot be reached by his mercy. And so I'm going to ask you as we go through this book to think through that. As we read the text, even before I comment on those places. I want you to begin to train your mind to think through, to see God's sovereignty and His grace littered through this book. Highlight it. Underline it. Because this is so much more than just a fish story. It's so much more than the story of a wayward prophet. This is the story of how a holy God deals with sinful people in His sovereign grace. I love this book. 
And as we move into the narrative in chapter 1, uh, things are going to get really familiar here. I know that you are not going to pick up very many details of the story that are brand new and earth-shattering for you. But my hope is, again, that you look at those details with fresh eyes. Uh, I want you to see the sovereignty of God woven throughout the fabric of history here. And what's striking to me right away is that that backdrop that God uses to demonstrate His sovereign grace is one of rebellion. God's sovereign grace, God's mercy are set against the backdrop of a mutiny here. You like how we kept the nautical theme? That's what this is. This is mutiny. This is a prophet rebelling against the sovereign call of God in his life. So what are we going to look at? First, we're going to look at the charge that God gives to Jonah. God says, arise, get up, and go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And because we know the rest of the story, we go immediately into Jonah's response, and we are going to get there because it is a sinful response, but before we rush ahead, I want you to consider for a moment exactly what God was asking Jonah to do. Because we know that Jonah messes up. Let me shake our heads. Silly Jonah, how could you? Understand that God has just called this man, a Jew, to go to the pagan capital of a pagan nation of a powerful, military, warlike, and often cruel people. And he has said, you are going to go there, and you are going to tell them that they have offended me, the God of Israel. Now, knowing what we know about Assyria, knowing what we know about people who don't typically like to be confronted in their sins, I'm not sure that's the most enticing mission that a prophet could be given. See, it's one thing to tell Israel God is going to restore the borders that he has allowed to shrink. It's one thing to tell people, God is going to be gracious, even though you're wicked. God is going to be gracious and allow you to go through a time of prosperity and security. It is quite another thing to go to a hostile nation and a hostile center for that population and say that God, very God, the holy God of creation, is aware of your corruption and your failure. Jonah is not being called to go plant a nice little Jewish synagogue in a friendly town. When I was in seminary, uh, at a few different points, it struck me because I would hear guys at the master seminary, seminary there say, you know, they felt the burden of God on their heart to really just take a leap of faith and plant a church in Santa Clarita. Several times I heard that. And how it was going to be hard, and how they didn't know how it was going to happen, but that they felt like that were God, that was where God called them. Look, I'm from Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita needs strong churches, but I wondered if these guys had ever asked, I don't know, the dozen or more healthy, thriving, gospel-centered churches, whether maybe they might need help. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Santa Clarita is not Nineveh. Camarillo is not Nineveh. Understand, there is a hostility to this message that is built into these people that we could be foreign with. Now, it makes sense then that Jonah would not want to go. It's also a weird call. Understand that God telling one of his prophets to go to a foreign nation is in and of itself a departure from what Israel normally does. Israel is called to be a light to the nations. But how is Israel primarily a light to the nations? God puts them here at the physical and economic and cultural crossroads of the nations. And he says, you stay there. And you obey me, and you watch what I do. 
And as Israel lives in prosperity, it's designed to point to the provision of God. And as Israel, tiny little insignificant Israel, lives in peace and security with all these powerful neighbors, it is designed to point to the power of Yahweh. As Israel lives in covenant obedience and blessing, it is designed to be a light to the nations that scream out about the glory and the power and the majesty of Israel's God. Israel's blessed life was designed to be a light to the nations. Now, as people came through, Israel was absolutely called to love and care for and interact in a very particular way with the sojourner, with the stranger, with the alien among them. Israel would welcome people into the Jewish faith through conversion as they adhered to the law. But Israel is not a great outgoing missionary people. It's simply, there is no specific parallel Great Commission passage in the Old Testament. The fact that God says, Jonah, go, is a different kind of call. And the shocking reality is that neither one of those reasons are why Jonah went left instead of right. We are going to dig down in this in in depth in chapter 4. But do not ever think that Jonah turned the other way because of the danger or the risk or the foreign nature of what he had been called to do. In short, God knew, or Jonah knew, that God was not only able to destroy Nineveh, but that he was able to save Nineveh. And what Jonah could not stomach was the fact that God in his sovereignty might just spare the enemy of his people. So where do we see the sovereignty of God right here from the very beginning? It's in that call. The sovereign God who is able to, to call men to do difficult things. God is within his rights as creator, as provider, as covenant God of Israel to tell his prophet to do something difficult that might even put him in the place of danger. God in his sovereignty has the right and the ability to speak to nations or to remain silent. See, this message to Nineveh is sovereign grace that God would speak to a rebellious people. And Jonah sees the sovereignty of God. And Jonah even assumes the sovereign grace of God. And he says, I want no part of it. So rather than obey God's charge, we see Jonah change the plan. Verse 3, but Jonah. That is never a good start to a sentence. When God says do this, and the next verse starts with but, nothing good happens. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What do you see repeated over and over and over there? Jonah is not going where he was supposed to go. He's going, Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. And why is he doing that? He's going away from the presence of the Lord. Now, where's Tarshish? There's a couple of options here. Uh, If you look at that map behind me, uh, there are several, again, options. The most likely one is that it is on the coast of Spain. I actually tend to think it's even a little further west than where this map has it. But what you get the sense of there is that Nineveh is one direction. Tarshish is about as humanly possible far in the other direction. Jonah is willing to pay money to run in the polar opposite direction from where God has called him to go. And he has done it to flee from the presence of the Lord. Some people, uh, commentators suggest that that just means fleeing from the land of the Lord. I think that the implications in what he did are, are far beyond that. 
Jonah knows what God is like. Jonah has a sneaking suspicion about what God is up to, and Jonah wants no part in it. He wants no part in the plans or the purpose of the God of Israel. Uh, Let that sink in for a minute. God has made his will clear to Jonah. Jonah knows what God is like. He is not scared. He is angry. He is not scared. He simply disagrees with God's call. And Jonah knows. What does Jonah know about the presence of the Lord? Well, Jonah knows the Psalms just like we do. Jonah knows Psalm 139 that says there's nowhere to go from the presence of the Lord. Heights, depths, ends of the earth. Jonah knows those things. I have no doubt that intellectually, Jonah's theology was solid. What I don't know was that in that moment, whether or not he had convinced himself that that wasn't true, or whether like you and I, if we're honest, let happen so often, then that is sin hardens what we know to be true about God. Sin takes what I know to be true about God and shuts off any tenderness, any capacity to respond to that that truth. In reality, sin makes us foolish. See, Jonah forgot that in God's sovereignty... He exercises perfect knowledge, perfect understanding over every part of his creation at all times. There is nowhere you can go where God is not. So where do we see God's sovereignty here? Consider this for a moment. God let him get on the boat. Not only did he let him get on a boat, he let him get on that boat with those particular sailors. I have said it a couple of times over the Minor Prophets, where the books should have ended. Israel, you did this. God is going to do this, period. That ought to be the end of the story. There is no reason for the last five verses in the book of Amos. Jonah should be the shortest book in the Minor Prophets. It should go something like, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and died. That should be the end of the story. When Jonah turns one way toward Joppa instead of toward Nineveh, that ought to be the end of it. But God in his grace and his mercy allows his prophet to flee from him. Because God allows that rebel to pursue his own course because he's going to put him in the path of sailors who are about to be brought along on the ride of their lives. And that brings us to verse 4 and the rest of the chapter that plays out the consequence for Jonah's action. What's the result of that rebellion? God calls Jonah to go, but Jonah gets up to flee. And then in verse 4, your Bible either says, then the Lord, ESV says, but the Lord. Kind of like the but translation there. God says go, but Jonah does this. But God does this. And when you put Jonah's will against God's will, we can bet on which one's going to win and be right 100% of the time. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. But where do you see the sovereignty of God? You should already start underlining in your Bibles. This same God who has the ability to call his prophet is the same God who has the ability and the authority to command the wind and the waves themselves. The sovereignty of God now sends a storm that is severe, threatening to break the ship apart. And the mariners were afraid, and each one cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship over into the sea to lighten it for them. 
We're introduced to a crew who do exactly what we would expect them to do. Because they're experienced sailors, they know that the only hope in a severe storm is to lighten the ship. And that's a significant step to take. Because when you throw the cargo overboard, you throw your paycheck overboard. But it's hard to spend money when you're dead. So they make the trade-off. And they do what we would expect pagan people to do. And that is when the circumstances outside of their control, they cry out to the only higher power that they can conceive of. That they call out to the gods of whatever land, idolatrous people they came from. But what is Jonah doing? But Jonah, see, but God, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah had either convinced himself that fleeing from God had worked and was able to be at rest, or he was in enough turmoil where all he had left was the exhaustion of sleep. Either way, he's sleeping when everyone else is doing everything they can to save the ship. But the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. Jonah can remain ignorant no longer, and there's grace here. Not only the sovereignty of the storm, but grace and the fact that God sent the storm. You realize God could have allowed Jonah to slink off to Tarshish and disappear into obscurity, never to be heard from again. God could have let his wayward prophet go and not demanded that he confront what had just happened. God, in his grace, is disciplining his messenger. Bringing him into difficulty painful circumstances, even danger, so that he is forced to, convince, forced to confront what he is actually doing. But Jonah's not ready to admit that yet. Look at verse 7. And they said to one another, this is the, ship, the men on the boat, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come against us. Now, I, what should have already happened at this point? When the captain comes down and shakes Jonah awake and says, look, we're dying here. You better cry out to your God. Jonah's groggy response should have been, I know exactly what's going on. When you come up to the deck of the ship and the men are ready to cast lots, Jonah should have said, you don't need to do that. I know exactly what's going on. Can you picture this? On the deck, in the storm, in the middle of a raging sea, they say, we got to cast lots to figure out what's going on. And Jonah goes, yeah, good idea. Yeah, we better figure this out, guys. I got no idea. What's he doing? Hoping that this is just chance? Praying, maybe, that God is not involved in this situation? There is no such thing as chance, and Jonah knows that as well. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the call of Jonah. God is sovereign over the storm itself. God is sovereign over the way the lot falls on the deck of that tossing ship in the Mediterranean Sea. And so, of course, the lot comes up for Jonah, and then the questions start. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? We read that, picture that coming from all directions, in the darkness and the raging wind on the storm of that boat. And what does Jonah say? I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land and then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I love this. 
Jonah, the prophet who refused to go to a pagan people to tell them about what God is like, now stands soaking on the deck of a ship, tossed in the sea, telling pagan sailors what God is like. God will have his message delivered in exactly the way and at exactly the point that he decides. So they ask Jonah what they should do. Now they know the person behind their problem, and more than that, now they know the power of the God behind their problem. And so they are likely willing to do just about anything. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And we say, okay, good job, Jonah, poor guy. I mean, but at least he's willing to sacrifice himself for the others on the ship. And then somehow in our minds we get this picture of Jonah the martyr here. That's not what's happening. Jonah could have said, God called me to go to Nineveh. How about we turn around and go back toward Nineveh? He could have said, this storm is because of my disobedience. Uh, How about we try moving one step closer to obedience and see what happens? Uh, No, what did he say? Essentially, this is what Jonah says. I'd rather die than take one step closer to where God called me to go. When you read it that way, that is not a very flattering picture of his prophet. Sin hardens us, and sin had hardened Jonah. But look at what they do in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard. They dug their oars in to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah won't go to Nineveh because he knows that God might spare the lives of sinful people. The sailors on this boat are unwilling to put the life of the man who brought them into danger in jeopardy. As you read through Jonah chapter 1, you got to like the sailors much more than you like Jonah at this point. He is a wretched character at this point in the book. But rowing won't help because this is God's storm. In verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Who should have prayed that? Jonah! Jonah should have said, God, deliver the innocent lives on this ship. God, don't hold them guilty for what's about to happen. God, bring them through this. There is no sense that he has any kind of sensitivity to what God does, but these men actually say everything that we would expect God's prophet to say. And so they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And what am I going to say? That should be the end of the extended version of Jonah. A soggy prophet sinking in the Mediterranean and a group of pagan sailors who God in his mercy allows to go home. That would be enough. But it's not. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I have no way of knowing whether those men were saved on the deck of that ship that day. I don't know whether this turning to Yahweh was in a moment of terror. I do know it would have been a lot easier to make those vows before the storm stopped. 
God, if you are real, get me out of this. They make those vows when the sea is calm. I don't know whether the fear of the Lord in those vows represented a heart change and the genuine worship of the God of Israel. I hope that it does. And we're going to stop there today. Because in Hebrew, that's the end of chapter 1. The fact that there is a chapter 2, that verse 17 includes Jonah who is breathing, is a sovereign, merciful act of God. So the question is, what are you running from? Jonah ran from God because to him it made sense to run from God. The call was too hard. Not that the task was impossible. The fact was that Jonah just couldn't bear to think that God had actually called him to do that. So what are you running from? Maybe you're running from that thing that you know God has called you to do, but God would never call you to do that. God would never call you to give that up because it makes you happy. God would never call you to reconcile with that person because then they wouldn't get what's coming to them. God would never call you to share the gospel with that person because there's either no way they could be saved or maybe, although you'd never say it, you can't imagine heaven with that person there. Where are you running from the clear will of God in your life? Or maybe you're sitting here today or watching online or listening at some point and you're running from God altogether. You've convinced yourself that you will figure it out, that you are good enough, that you are smart enough, that you are strong enough, that you will do your life your way with your resources. I plead with you, learn from Jonah. The sovereign grace of a God who is unimaginably powerful but unimaginably gracious. So how do we respond to that? Three quick things. What do we know about God? We know that He is sovereign over hard things. Christian, and I'm talking to myself, get it through your head and your heart that God will call you to do hard things. To have hard conversations. To obey when it doesn't make sense. To obey when it costs you things. God might call you to stay in California pagan Nineveh and minister as a light in a dark place. I know. There are lots of good reasons to leave California. No particular condemnation to anybody. But as often as I hear I want to get out of this place so that I can raise my family in a particular environment, let me remind you there is no Christian promised land out there just waiting for you to fill it up. We live in a dark world, and we are called to be salt and light, and that might mean that God leaves you in a hard place. Whether that is this state, whether that is your job, whether that is your classroom, God might very well have called you to an unthinkably hard time so that you can be an unimaginably bright light in an incredibly dark place. Second, that same God, He is sovereign over hard times. Whether your hard time that you are going through is because we live in a sinful, broken world with sinful, fallen, temporary bodies and broken relationships, or whether your hard time is because you have turned and run headlong from God in the opposite direction, God is not absent from any of those things, which means the response is the same. You respond to Him in trust, faithful obedience, and joy in knowing that He is sovereign over all of those things and that His good and perfect will will be accomplished. And finally, He is sovereign over hard hearts because we've all got that person 
that we, although we'd never say it, we think is beyond hope. Whether it's the political leader, the family member, the coworker, the wayward child, that same sovereign God who commands the winds and the waves can turn the heart of the king like channels of water, can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, uses the power of the gospel, not the ability of the messenger, to accomplish eternal redemption for the people that he calls. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are sovereign and you are powerful, but Lord, you are so gracious and merciful, kind to us, fallen and failed people. Lord, remind us every day of your power and your mercy. Remind us every day of your holiness that drives us to worship fear and trembling and reverent obedience and your grace that calls us to come into your presence with joy, with thanksgiving, full of confidence, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done to reconcile us to you, to make us sons and daughters of the Most High. And Lord, we long for the time when the sin will be stripped away and we will be fit to be in your presence. So complete the good work that you've started in us. Make us faithful. Make us obedient. We pray that, Lord, you would come quickly. Amen.